in the small village of Spandam in Netherlands, there is a statue of one of the most fabled characters in all of Dutch history. Now, many of you may know this, that Netherlands is below sea level. And so in order to prevent the surrounding ocean from flowing in and destroying the city, large walls or dikes have been constructed around the city. Now, this statue is a depiction of a young boy who saved their town from the sea. So this is what happened. He noticed a leak in the dike, and he knew that it was only a matter of time before that leak turned into a flood. So what did he do? He plugged the hole in the dike with his finger, letting his hands get cold and numb and painful till the people of the town came to plug the leak in the dike. Amazing. The thing is, this story is completely a fiction. It appeared in a book by an American novelist who actually had never been to Netherlands. Because if you think about it, what chance does a little finger on a little boy have against a towering, pounding wall of water? In reality, he would have been quickly washed away along with his hometown if this really happened. But this story captures the imagination of the Dutch people because it is a story about bravery in the face of awesome danger. It reminds the Dutch people of the terrible threat that is lurking just on the other side of the dike. The inscription under the statue reads, dedicated to our youth, to honor the boy who symbolizes the perpetual struggle of Holland against the water. Well, in the text that we are going to read today morning, we will watch as Moses attempts to put himself between the sinful Israelites and the awesome wrath of God, a feat that is even more impossible. So let me encourage us to open our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 32. That's our text for this morning. And as you turn there, let me just point out that the story we are going to read is an amazing story. And it happens not long after God has rescued his people from Egypt and taken them into the wilderness to prepare them for a new life as his chosen people. So at this point, he has given them his laws and they have agreed to keep it. And God has made a covenant with his people. There's one other thing you should know before we come to the story. Moses, who God used to deliver his people out of Egypt, has been gone for a very long time. It has been nearly 40 days since Moses went up the mountain. So let's read Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, 
we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on each side of you and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forget their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Well, there are two things I want us to notice as we go through this passage. Well, the two things are based on the two geographical locations that we see in the passage. The first is what happens below the mountain. We will see the seriousness of sin as we observe what happens below the mountain. And the second thing we are going to see is what happens on top of the mountain, the hope of a mediator. What happens below the mountain? What happens above the mountain? What happens below the mountain signifies the lowest point for Israel spiritually. And what happens above the mountain signifies the great hope that Israel has in their relationship with the Lord. Now, for anyone who has followed the journey of God's people up to this point in the book of Exodus and has seen God's tender and faithful care of his people all this time, this incident of the worship of the golden calf is enough to make you sick to your stomach. How could they, after all that they have experienced from the hand of God, do such a terrible thing? Well, let's see how it all begins. Look at verse 1. It all starts this way. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, after that, everything goes south. You see, Moses was their leader. He was the only way through which they could hear God speak to them. But now Moses has been gone for a long time. He has been gone for 40 days. And where were these people going to? Well, they were going to go to the promised land. But how are they going to get to the promised land without Moses? There was no way for them to know what God wanted them to do once they arrived there. So what do they do? They take matters into their own hands, which is never a good idea when it comes to how we should worship God. They go to Aaron and they ask them to make them a representation of God. Unfortunately, if you look at verses 2 to 4, Aaron listens to their concerns. He collected the gold. It's fashioned into a golden calf. And what follows right after this is a worship service, very much like what we are doing here this morning. 
It's amazing to read all the things that they did in front of this idol. There is an altar in verses 5 to 6. There were burnt offerings and peace offerings. There was a feast. There was even Aaron, a priest. This was a corporate worship service around a golden calf. These were things that should have been reserved for the worship of the true and living God and no one else. Well, how did they get here? Notice their request to Aaron in verse 1. They say, make us gods who shall go before us. And do you notice what Aaron says about the idol that they made in verse 4? He says, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, who's that? And look at verse 5. When he offers the feast, it says that he is offering it to the Lord, the God of Israel. In other words, when the people made the golden calf, their intention was not to forsake worshiping the true and living God. They didn't intend to move away from worshiping Yahweh. They were, in their minds, worshiping the God who brought them up out of Egypt. But they made a big mistake. In making this idol, they were breaking the second commandment. They took matters of worship into their own hands, and they committed a very serious sin. This incident of the golden calf teaches us an important lesson, that worshiping the true God in a wrong way is a violation of God's commands. Worshiping even the true God in a wrong way is a violation of God's commands. You know, unfortunately, many people don't take the worship of God very seriously today. They think that as long as we mean well, as long as there are good intentions, it doesn't really matter how we worship God. Or think about how people talk about the church. Many people say things like, God doesn't really care about what we do when we gather together as a church. Does it really matter how we think about what the church is and what we do together? Does it really matter even if whether we attend church or not? But friends, God has not left us in the dark when it comes to how we should worship him. He takes this very seriously. Even when we gather together as a church, we must listen to what God has given us in his word. The New Testament commands us to gather together every week. We are to devote ourselves to the public reading of God's word. We are to faithfully preach God's word and submit ourselves as we listen to the preaching of God's word. We are to share in the Lord's Supper. We are to celebrate baptisms. We are to sing, to praise God and to encourage one another. We are to come together and pray together. God demands that we obey him in all of this. You see, today so much of our sin when it comes to our worship of God is motivated by simply giving into the demands that we face all around us. Just like Aaron. Look at what he says to Moses in verse 22 and 23 in his defense. He says it was because of the people. The people were demanding that Aaron make an idol for them. They worship this idol. And he completely caves in. He should not have listened to them. 
but he listens to the inappropriate concerns, even though he was the one who was in charge of leading. You know, today, so much of the concerns that Christians have is to look good in the eyes of people. Churches face pressure all the time, pressure to change the way we worship rather than simply follow what is laid down for us in God's word. Sometimes the pressures are explicit, like what we see in this passage, to make a golden calf, which is a serious sin. But sometimes it's not very easy to tell. There are pressures that are more subtle to distract us from focusing on the gospel and from preaching God's word faithfully. Today, there are a lot of demands on churches to simply cater to felt needs because that's what people want to hear. Well, let this story be a warning for us. And obedience to God's word will put us at odds with what a lot of people want. But we have no choice. We must worship God in the way that he has commanded us. Now, what's ironic about the story is that while they were worshiping idols at the foot of the mountain, at the same time, on top of the mountain, God in his grace was making a way for him to give himself to his people in a very special way. God was giving instructions to Moses as to how he should construct the tabernacle, which was going to be the way that God would be present with his people as they journey into the promised land. It was very much like a man preparing himself and his bride for a holy union. But while God was doing that, making preparations to give himself in love to his people, the Israelites were giving away their hearts in worship to other gods. As Mark Dever puts it, this is like committing adultery on your wedding night. This was betrayal at its worst. Friends, we should see idolatry for what it really is. It is no less than committing adultery against God. Now, it's easy for us to be shocked at the Israelites and to look down on them. But turning from God and turning to idols was a problem not just back then, but it is also a problem today. Now, my guess is none of you have a golden calf in your home that you worship. If you do, repent of it. But we still commit idolatry in our hearts all the time. We are great idol-making machines. We are constantly turning God's good gifts into his replacements in our lives. And in doing so, we are no different than the people of Israel in this story. But we must go one step further to understand what is at the heart of all idolatry. Why did the people of Israel want to do this at all? You know, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was killed after preaching the sermon, he gives us a reason for why the Israelites wanted to worship this golden calf. So turn to Acts chapter 7, and let's look at verse 39. Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. Did you catch what Stephen was saying 
about why they made this golden calf? This is what he says. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt. The golden calf shows that the Israelites' problem was that they never left Egypt in the first place. In their hearts, no matter what they said with their mouths, they kept turning back to their former condition of slavery. They were not loyal in their relationship with Yahweh. You know, our sin makes us desire for the things that used to enslave us before Christ met us. Things that used to rule our lives. Things that we were submitting our lives to before. We should ask ourselves, have we turned back in our hearts to the things that we used to live for before? What is it that we love more than we love God right now? You know, the reason why we keep turning back in our hearts is because we keep entertaining the love of the things that used to rule our hearts before. The problem is with our hearts. So friends, let's confess the idols of our heart, the things that we used to worship. What are the things that we used to love more than we loved God before? For some of us, it may be comfort. It may be the approval of others. It may be success, pleasure, money. They're tempting because they used to be our masters in the past. We used to live for them. We looked to them to save us, but they failed us, and we haven't learned our lesson yet. As one author puts it, the only thing that is dependable about idols is that they never fail to fail. But friends, in Christ, we have been delivered from those things, just as God delivered his people out of Egypt. Christ has set us free if you are in Christ. So friends, why would you want to go back to living the way you used to live? What good did your idols ever do to you? You know, you will never put the idols from your heart until you realize that serving Jesus is better than serving all the idols that you used to live for. You will never stop until you realize that it is better to be in a relationship with God than being enslaved. So let me encourage you today, after the service, find a brother or sister and ask them these two questions. Who or what has taken the place of God in your life right now? Who or what has taken the place of God in your life right now? And secondly, how is Jesus better? How is Jesus better than the idols that you serve? Let's confess our idols. Let's put them away and let's replace them with the worship of the true God who has delivered us from our slavery. Now, the other thing that we should notice about what sin does to us and what makes sin so serious is in this passage, sin is described as making the people like animals. Listen to God's evaluation of his people in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, that phrase may not make much sense to us today, but it would have made perfect sense back then. To be stiff-necked is to be like a wild calf that is unwilling to bend its neck to the yoke of its master. So you have to picture a wild cow that is rebellious, that cannot be tamed, that is unwilling to submit to anybody. You'll also notice that the same language is used in verse 25, that they are like animals. 
Moses, it says, Moses saw the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose. They were just like animals. The point is, Israel has become so stubborn and so wayward in their sin. See, the people didn't like the idea of serving Yahweh. Instead, they wanted to create their own God to worship. You know, this golden calf was a convenient God. It did not tell them what to do. This God did not come with laws, did not require them to repent when they sinned. You know, and this image of being stiff-necked is also a good description of us when we are rebelling against God. When we rebel against God, we are showing that we do not want him to have authority over us. We want things to go our way. Our sinful hearts show that we want a God who will not tell us how we should live, who will stay out of our way, who will let us have whatever it is that we desire. So ask yourself again, I know these are lots of questions, but ask yourself, are there ways right now you are being stiff-necked like the people in this chapter? Have you made up your mind that no matter what God has said in his word, you will do whatever it is that makes you feel good, that your feelings are more important than what God has said in his word? And maybe there are ways that you justify your sin by saying that you're willing to obey God in everything else except this one thing, just this one thing, you find yourself not willing to submit to God. Maybe it is the way that you relate to your husband or wife. Maybe it has to do with how you handle your money. Maybe it's the way that you interact with your parents. Maybe it is what you do in the privacy of your homes or in the privacy of your phones. Maybe it is your anger against people from a certain culture. Or maybe it is how you treat those who are under you. Friends, it is easy for us to read this passage and be shocked by what the Israelites are doing after all that God has done for them. But we need to see that our heart's inclinations are the same as the Israelites. Well, the final thing that we want to see about how serious sin is, is in light of the consequences that it brings on the people of Israel. And that is God's judgment. So if you notice in verses 25 to 29, this is where, how you see God's judgment in this passage. Moses gathers to himself anyone who's on the Lord's side, the sons of Levi come to him. And in verse 28, 3,000 Israelites die by the sword. And at the end of the chapter, we see that God pronounces judgment on his people. I wonder what you think of what God is doing here in light of their sin. You know, in a too tolerant world, one might say that God is being overreactive or harsh. But thinking in such a way only shows that we misunderstand God's character. God is not being vindictive. He is being holy. God is unimaginably holy. And therefore it is right that he will not let sin and rebellion go unpunished. It's texts like these that also make some people say things like, you know, the God of the Old Testament, I don't like the God of the Old Testament because he's more terrible, he's more vengeful. I like the God of the New Testament who is gentle and loving. 
But if you were to read the New Testament carefully, you will see that most of the teaching on hell comes from Jesus himself. So while God sends them a plague in this passage and the death of 3,000 men, though terrible, it's nothing compared to what God is holding back from them. Physical disaster is terrible, but eternal judgment, hell, well, that lasts forever. God says to Moses in verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot them out from the book. This book, the book of life, contains the name of all those who will spend eternity with God. And anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be condemned forever. Friends, none of us in this room deserves to be in that book. What we deserve, what we rightly deserve because of our sin, is to be judged for all of eternity because we have sinned against a holy God. Well, in light of the seriousness of sin, in light of the fact that God's righteous judgment will come on all sinners because they are guilty, it sets us up for what we are going to observe next. And that is what happens on top of the mountain, the hope of a mediator, the hope of a mediator. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. The Lord said to Moses, he said, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order to make a great nation of you. Now, given what they have just done to God, and given how seriously God takes sin, it makes perfect sense for God to wipe away his people and start again with Moses. But there is a tension in this passage. After all, God did not bring his people out of slavery in Egypt just to wipe them out in the wilderness because of their sin. Moses makes this point as he pleads with God. And the amazing thing is, when Moses says this, God relents of the disaster that he had spoken of bringing his people in verse 14. Now, we should not make the mistake of thinking that Moses is somehow more merciful than God is to his own people. Because we should remember that after all, it is God who provided them a mediator in Moses. And it was for this very moment when the people of God in their sin will need someone like Moses to plead for them. So in this passage, while we see the righteous judgment of God against sin, we are also meant to see the richness of God's mercy to sinners in that he has provided them a mediator. And from this, we learn the most, the, the all-important lesson of how crucial it is to have a mediator who will pray for you before God. There are two times we see Moses praying here. The first prayer is in verse 11 to 14. This is what Moses prays. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And all this land that I promised, I will give to your offspring. And they shall inherit it forever. Moses is praying here, this first prayer, 
that God would relent from bringing complete destruction on his people. God was getting ready to forsake his people. It's also implied in the way that he speaks about his people. So notice in verse 7, he refers to his own people as not my people, but he says to Moses, your people. And he says in verse 9, this people. So Moses begins by reminding the Lord that they are in fact God's people. After all, God was the one who purchased them by powerfully redeeming them out of Egypt and bringing them out. They are yours. That's what Moses is saying in his prayer to God. Now notice the reason that Moses gives for why God should relent. He does not say, you know, after all, these people meant well, even though they made the golden calf. Or he doesn't say that there is hope for these people. No, Moses wants God to relent because he cares deeply about the name of the Lord. So in verse 12, he says, he doesn't want the Egyptians to say that with evil intent, God brought them out. Moses cares for God's name to be honored among the nations, for the nations to know that God is a God who fulfills his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Moses was so God-centered in his thought and in his prayer. The glory of God was front and center for Moses. That even when God offered this opportunity for Moses to be the father of the people of Israel, to start over with him, for Moses to be like Abraham, to have that great honor, Moses will have none of it. The glory of God was at stake. And Moses was far more concerned about that than even his own life. We see this actually more clearly in a second prayer to God. So after the first time Moses prays, he comes down from the mountain. He sees the idolatry with his own eyes. Moses smashes the tablets. He destroys the golden calf. He forces Israel to drink its dust. He confronts Aaron and he orders the slaughter of 3,000 Israelites. And then he goes back a second time up on the mountain to pray to God, to plead for his people. And this is the difference in his prayer the second time. Verse 31, he says, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, if not, please blot me out from your book that you have written. Here, Moses is not asking God to relent from bringing disaster on his people. God has already granted that after that first prayer that Moses prays. This time, Moses is asking for something even bigger. Moses is asking for God to forgive them their sins and offering to take their place if God was not willing to forgive. Moses was willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of the forgiveness of the people of Israel. But this time, after his second prayer, God says, no. Moses' plea was denied. The Lord would not allow Moses to take on Israelites' punishment. And at the end, in verse 34, he promises to punish the guilty. So as we come to the end of this section, we are meant to ask this question. If even Moses was not successful in mediating God's forgiveness for his people, then who 
is sufficient to be the mediator for sinners. Well, friends, God has provided us a better mediator than Moses. God, in his rich mercy, has not just provided us with a prophet, but his only son, Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, the sinless savior, the spotless lamb. He was sufficient to be sacrificed to pay for our sins. It was the will of God that he be crushed for our iniquities. So in God's rich mercy, Jesus comes into this world and dies on the cross to bear the full wrath of God that sinners deserve, you and I deserve, for the rebellion that we have made against God. So friends, now, if we say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it is only because Jesus has paid it all. He has died on the cross for guilty sinners who had no hope apart from him to have forgiveness before a holy God. Friends, and this is how we can be sure that God's judgment was satisfied because three days after he died, God powerfully rose him from the dead. And now we can say with great confidence that if anyone would repent of their sin and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, God promises that he will forgive them because Jesus is a sufficient sacrifice for sinners. Friends, uh, this is amazing news. Maybe you are here this morning and this is the first time you're coming to church, this church, and you are hearing the gospel of Jesus. This is the first time you are finding out about what Jesus has done on the cross for sinners. Or maybe you have been coming for a while and you haven't repented of your sin and turned to Jesus. Well, I want to encourage you to consider doing that today. Because the Bible says that in order to approach God, we need a mediator. And the Bible also says that there is only one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. So don't delay. I want to encourage you. Turn to him. Even today, trust in him so you may be saved. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead means great things for Christians. It should be of great comfort and encouragement. Because after he rose from the dead, he, ascends, he ascended into heaven, just like Moses ascended the mountain. Jesus ascended heaven, uh, into heaven. And the author of Hebrews, in chapter 7, verse 25, tells us this about Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We are meant to see as we read this passage in light of Christ, that what Jesus is doing for us right now as he's seated in heaven. Jesus has not only died to forgive sinners, but he lives in heaven to intercede for us. And it is because of his intercession that all the blessings and the benefits of his work on the cross are applied to us even today. Christ presents himself before the throne of God as our representative. At the very sight of Christ, our great Savior, God's displeasure towards us is turned. He no longer is angry with us when he looks at Christ. Instead, he is only pleased. 
his heart is moved towards us in love at the very sight of Jesus in heaven. What does this mean for us as believers? Well, friends, in light of this, light of the fact that Jesus lives as our mediator, we can be encouraged even when we see our sin and weakness. You know, our sin discourages us. Our sin casts doubts on us. It clouds our judgment about who we really are. But we must remember that we have an advocate before the Father. And Jesus stops whatever charge the devil brings against those who trust in him. He answers it all by his work on the cross. He makes sure that there is no stop to the forgiveness that we will receive from God. So brother and sister, when you see your sin and it causes you to despair, remember that Christ always lives to intercede for you. Secondly, we are encouraged to pray even when we feel like our prayers are lifeless and cold. You know, sometimes when we pray, we feel like our hearts are cold. We feel very distracted, distant from God. But we should remember that, that Christ speaks on our behalf before the throne of God. And this should encourage us to pray. We must not neglect the amazing privilege that only Christians have before God, that our Savior is in heaven to present all our prayers before God. We can be sure that God will hear them. He listens to all our prayers. And finally, in light of the fact that Jesus is our mediator, we are encouraged to make progress in our sanctification. You know, we have so much to grow in our Christian lives. We have so much to grow in fighting sin, in knowing God, in loving other brothers and sisters like Christ loved us. But if we are in Christ, whether we are a one-day-old Christian or we have been walking with Jesus for a long time, we can be encouraged that because Jesus intercedes for us, we can grow. We can make progress in our sanctification. After all, the Bible says he's not only the author of our salvation, he's also the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is praying for us and he will not stop praying till we are perfect, till we become exactly like him. So brothers and sisters, let's fight sin. Let's love one another. Let's strive to obey God in everything that he's commanded us. Let's be diligent in praying, knowing what Christ is doing for us right now in heaven. Christian, this is our greatest comfort. Even now, even this very second, our tender loving shepherd is asking God to give us so much more than we deserve. Be encouraged as you think about what a great savior you have.